being creative is a spiritual journey and it requires you have to have spiritual reasons for doing what you're doing when i say spiritual i mean not material and the material also includes status so if you're doing what you're doing to be powerful wealthy to have status you're not going to be creative and you can just forget it painter can create a work of art and never see people interact with it. Writers rarely experience their work with readers. A software engineer may never meet a user. But when a musician writes a song, records it, and performs it night after night, their work lives, breathes, and unifies. Today's guest is Brother Ali. For 20 years, he has been writing and performing around the world. In this interview, he shares his creative process, gives advice to people who want to be more creative, and he candidly discusses his successes, failures, and the role music plays in bringing us together. Ali, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, thank you. Well, let's just get started by talking about your occupation. Can you describe what you do for a living? Well, interestingly enough, not many people know that I actually split my time and have been doing so for the last four years. What most people know me for is that I write and record and perform music as an independent hip-hop artist. And for the last four or five years, I've been splitting my time between that and also studying and teaching Islam. I travel a lot, you know, for that. So at at one point, um, there have actually been several points where I thought about going to a particular university or center of learning or something like that. But the most traditional way to study, a, you know, a spiritual tradition is with a teacher. Um, the idea is that the, the tradition doesn't live on the pages of books, but in the hearts of the seekers and the lovers, the practitioners, the knowers. So the idea is to get close to them. A lot of times when people go to universities like Al-Azhar, for example, is the, the, one of the big ones in Egypt. Or, um, you know, there are big ones in Morocco and around the Muslim world, you know. Most of the time, people end up studying a larger, uh, you know, a great deal of, of their actual book knowledge in the university. But then there also will be kind of like an ecosystem of teachers that are, you know, around that area because of the fact that it's a, it's a hub. And they actually end up doing a lot of their most transformative study with those individual teachers one-on-one or in small groups. I've actually never graduated from anything in my life. Like I've never, I didn't graduate high school, never went to college. And even with the Islamic tradition, like I study it one-on-one with teachers. So I travel and um, I try to be wherever they are, like whoever the people are that allow me to be around them and welcome me, you know, and uh, care for me and teach me at the rate that I need to be taught and the things that I need to be taught. Wherever they are, I try to, as often as possible, to spend as much time as possible in their presence. And then when I'm not with them, some of them, we, we trade WhatsApp uh, voice notes. So I actually have daily conversations with multiple people around the world that I record them messages, questions, and things like that. When you're on tour, what does a typical day look like? I usually wake up and go to sleep twice. So I... I, I most days I'm able to wake up for the pre-dawn prayer, 
which depending on what time of year it is, you know, it could be. Sometimes if, if I'm touring in the spring and summer, I can usually do it before going to bed because it'll come in, it, you know, that prayer will start happening around four o'clock or something like that. So a lot of times I'll stay up for that. But in the fall and winter, I'll usually wake up for that. So wake up, wash up, pray. It's, it's a pretty quick process. It can be done pretty quickly. And then I'll try to go back to sleep for a couple hours and then wake up, shower. I like to, most people have some uh, ritual or thing that they do on tour regularly to just make them feel grounded. Uh, so for some people, it's, you know, different people have different rituals, but for me, it's making coffee. Like I'm really into coffee. And so I bring my own like brewing equipment and a scale and I have this like Japanese hand grinder that's like porcelain on the inside. So it, it grinds the beans perfectly. And, um, you know, I bring a kettle. So I usually will set that up and make coffee, but then you have to clean it all up. It takes a lot of time, but it really is like, it really matters to me. And then also I don't use beans that are more than a week old, like after they've been brewed. So it's a constant process of like, you know, searching out the really good local coffee roasters and finding good fresh beans you know so that's one of the things that i do to like ground myself so i do that in the morning and then we usually will get in the van most of the time it's a van if it's a profitable tour we'll have like the mercedes sprinter van if it's not then we'll be in a you know either a a 15 passenger van or sometimes uh, even a minivan and we get in and we drive to you know to whatever the next city is when you're on tour do you do you write is that part of what you do, or are you just typically focused on performing? It's pretty rare that I write. I started doing a, this just kind of exercise where I'll make a beat. You know, Instagram gives you one minute of video time. Now they have IGTV, but prior to that, they give you one minute of video that you can post. And you can post multiple videos if you want. But So this, I, would, I was doing these, these kind of exercises where I would make a beat, and then not write the song, but right on the spot, I would think of a few bars, record them, think of a few more bars, record those. And I would do it until I get to one minute. And then I would find some, I would figure out some type of visual that can go with it and post those. So I've done those on the road. When you post them, are you looking for feedback from people? Or what, what's the um, what's I mean, the it's, it's for mostly that? for me to have the exercise of being creative. I started doing it because I had an album coming out and the the videos and things like that were taking way too long. So I just needed something to engage people and for people to come back and listen to. But I do notice that when I do them, they get a lot of traffic and they get, you know, it. they're a good way to keep people engaged. What does a day look like? So we talked about tour. What does a day look like when you're in Minneapolis? Minneapolis, I get up. I, I get up at, you know, four or five or something like that whenever that morning prayer is, but then I stay up. And usually I do the majority of my study in the morning before my wife and kids get up. So I usually will get a couple hours in and then they get up and then I usually cook breakfast for everybody and just help people get on to whatever they're doing. And then I'll be home with the kids during the day. So, you know, it's usually, the days usually aren't that productive and, you know, in terms of working, but uh, I'll usually try to get in an hour or two at some other point in the day to be creative, to produce. So if I, you know, if the morning is about taking in information, the, the afternoon is when I, when I write. 
or when I when I prepare or record or you know that's usually output. And how long would you typically dedicate to that? In a day, right? Um, I mean, it would be really easy to dedicate the whole day to it. And there are times when I'm in album mode, where you know we'll have childcare, it'll just be understood that I'm not going to be very available during that time. And so it's very easy to go for twelve hours. Really? Yeah, it's no problem, no big deal. Yeah, it's actually really difficult to try to get it in in an hour and a half or two hour, you know, blocks during the day. That's really difficult to limit it to that period. Can you describe the process for creating a song? I usually, I always start with the music. So I'll, I'll hear music and music usually grabs me because of the mood or the energy of it. Or I feel like the the emotion of it, the vibe of the of the piece of music. And then... When I sit with it, I try to figure out what what was it that drew me to that feeling, and, and so a lot of the time I think like when have I when have I felt this way, or what in my life feels this way, and so I'll write the song based on that. That's that's typically what I've done for most of my career. I recently have really been pushing myself to get out of my comfort zone, so I've been releasing music for 19 years. And um, I feel like I've gotten really good at certain things. And there's, there are certain crutches that I, now I have. So the things that I worked so long to get good at, now those are the things that are holding me back, I think. So basically the fact that I know how to write a song. A lot of rappers can rap. Like the act of rapping a verse to a beat, they're very good at that. It's another thing to be able to write a song. So that... You know, how does it start? How does it end? What's the structure? Do you have a chorus? Does the beginning of a verse sound like your beginning of verse? Does the verse end like your ending of verse? You know, in this way, you know, regardless of what the song is about, regardless of nothing in the song is particularly stands out as being really special, it'll, it'll be presentable and it'll be easy to listen to. And then if you, when I have a bunch of those, I know how to make them to an album. So regardless of what I'm talking about or what I'm thinking about or what I'm working on, like I know how to make it presentable. But because of that, and that's something that takes a long time to be able to do, uh, but because of that, I feel like I've, I've, I'm, at, I'm in danger of repeating myself. It would be, and, and I know that I'm taking a certain amount of uh, security in that rather than you know, there's a certain comfort in that that doesn't force me. I know that these lyrics don't have to stand on their own. I know that the beat, the vibe, whatever, the performance, that none of it has to stand on its own because it's all going to get packaged well. And so uh, I've, I've been challenging myself lately to get out of that. And I'm working with somebody right now that I, I can't talk about who it is just yet, but I'm doing an entire project with a person who's completely opposite of me and everything that I've that I've done, and at least in my understanding, you know. So I'm used to working in a way that's really efficient and directed and focused. And, um, you know, I'm working with a person that just does everything completely backwards to how I do it. So I'm putting myself in a situation where even if I, even if I break through and make a song with a song structure that feels like, oh, the person that I'm working with will be like, this sounds like a Brother Ali song. This is not going to be on the album. So all the songs that make sense to me, he's like, no, this this won't be on the album. You can put it out separately, 
but it's not going to be on this project. How, how does that feel? How does that feel to work with somebody like that? that I mean, my really ego hates you. it. Yeah, my ego hates it. But that's the per- that's the whole thing about being creative. Like, if your ego is comfortable, then you're not being creative. Like, you're just, you know what I mean? That's not art at that. That's point. growth. It sounds like it's growth. Well, yeah, I'm 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 inviting growth. Like, I'm hoping to grow. Right. You know what I mean? And I don't know if I am, but I don't. I th- and, and I don't. The, the thing is, like, I don't know if this project will be good. But I know that in the future, it'll it will. I know that it's impossible for me to not learn something, you know, and, you know, I see a lot of people that I've admired for a long time getting really stagnant and safe and boring and their music doesn't have any edge anymore. And um, it's very clear that they're not inspired. Is the process for creating an album similar to creating a song or how do you go about creating an album? Usually you make songs and then there'll be a standout one. And you're like, okay, this, this is this is one of the pillars of the of the album, and then, you know, once you get once you get like three, four, five pillar songs, now you real then you start to realize like, okay, this is how this is shaping up. You know that when that song is being recorded, you know that this is gonna be a standout. Usually, yeah, I think, yeah. What you uh, can tell? When, what are a couple of the standouts in your mind? Oh well, each album has them, and they might not be career standouts. Yeah. But they're the ones that set the framework for the album. So what would be examples of that? So I have an album called Undisputed Truth, which is like, that's when I started this whole thing of of me being like, okay, this is what my life feels like. So Undisputed Truth is my second album, my second like real album. And after my first album, I went on tour a lot, divorced my first wife, went through a custody battle, didn't have anywhere to live for a while and fell in love again or fell in love for the, for, for the real, for the first time. So I have a song called walking away. That's about the moment where I'm telling my wife, my first wife, this, that this it's over. I wrote it to one piece of music and it was okay. It was fine. But then aunt was like, these lyrics are great. This beat is not. Aunt is your producer. Yeah. Aunt is the producer that I worked with for most of my albums. So, you know, he's saying the the words are amazing, but the music's not. So he starts just playing different pieces of music, and then he plays this one that's really, like, quiet and intimate sounding. It's it's somebody whistling. It's just a person whistling and a, and a Rhodes organ. And I get four bars into rapping the words, and we both were just, like, had goosebumps. It was like, okay, I think that's the moment that we knew that album. And then there's one on there where I'm telling my son that our family's going to, you know what I mean? That's another one of those. You know, there's, oh, then there's there's one, uh, there's one called Freedom Ain't Free where I talk about the, basically the the idea of destroying your entire life, like dismantling everything you've built so because you, re- you realize that this, this fortress I built is actually a prison. And... You know, it's about that moment of like, oh, I'm about to de- I'm about to destroy my whole life with the hope of being happy with whatever comes next, but completely not knowing that. So that was one of the pillars. When we made that song, like we knew it. Like we both just went home. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, that we're we're done for today. And um 
you just you the song like that you just listen to it for three or four days until you get over it and because you're just like this was given to me by god this was given to both of us by god and um then the fourth one on that album is there's a song called here which is about the realization that you've fallen in love and now there's a person who has access to you, your heart in a way that you never intended to grant any, you know what I mean? So yeah, those four songs, when those songs were done, then the rest of it, is, you're just, you're building it out. And then we ended up having more. So there's like, those aren't the biggest songs on that album. There's one on there called Uncle Sam Goddamn, which isn't even a person, that's a political song. But that's one of the ones that, that's a bigger song than those four songs. But for that album to be the album that it is, those that that one on there that would be considered the hit, if you want to call it that, the hit isn't the one that made the album what it is. So you put your heart and your soul into this album. How does it feel emotionally afterwards? Creating is, um, a lot of people talk about it self-expression, but before you can express, you have to exp like do self-exploration. So real self-exploration means that you go into it with this idea that like, I think I'm this person. I have this image of myself. That like, I'm this guy that does this and I'm like this and this is what I'm like and this is how, what I think. And these are my beliefs and these are my opinions and this is, this is my personality. And to really explore yourself, you have to find things there that either, where like that narrative, that image of yourself is not going to be true anymore. Either you find that you are lying about part of it or you find something there that you never acknowledge that just complicates the story. So that's the first part of a death. Like there, you, you're not going to see yourself the same way afterwards. And if you do, then you haven't really created. You know, that's not art. That's a sport, you know, or that's a, um, that's a performance. But to really, to really explore the self is like, I'm not going to, I will not be the same person. The, the image of myself is going to die. And then to express that, you're showing your, a version of yourself that is not the image you've been projecting either. So the you that you've been performing dies too. So it's terrifying. There's, there's no way for it not to be terrifying because you don't know if, are people going to accept this? Are they going to get it? Are they going to reject it? You know, if... And that's why most artists say, like, I would rather either be loved or hated. But to be ignored is, like, really, that's really, that's the most painful. When did you know that you were going to be a musician or that you could make a career out of this? Well, those are two very, very different points. Like, I knew that I was a musician when I was a little kid. I've always known that. I've never not known that. Um, I've always known that I was a communicator. That's, to me, that's, the, that's what it's really about. To me, it's really about communication. So when I find myself splitting my time between studying Islam and then teaching it, the spiritual path, you know, studying the spiritual path is self-exploration and then teaching it is self-expression. The same with music. I, I'm doing the same thing, that like I want to know myself and I want to connect with other people about knowing ourselves. Like that's what I really do. Making a career and profession out of it that's when I'm when I met Atmosphere. That's when I knew. I I didn't think it was. I had no belief in it at all until I met Atmosphere. And what year was that? Is that ninety nine, ninety eight? Ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, around then. And for those 
people who may not know Atmosphere, they're they're big hip hop band and yeah, well, Atmosphere is a is an underground independent hip hop group that started in the mid '90s out of Minneapolis. Uh, it's these two guys that are black, white, and native. Um, if I think white people think they're white, I think people of color know that they're something else. But they definitely present to the world as a white rap group. And they came along at a time in hip-hop when things were really flashy and really polished. It was like right after Biggie and Tupac died. And so things were really about, you know, the music industry. And they came at, uh, along and just did it completely independently. And so they created a new way of making and selling music, but they also created a new, a new type of music, a new subgenre within the hip-hop genre. And there were others along with them. So if people know Run the Jewels, LP from Run the Jewels was part of that movement as well. And um, if people are familiar with Macklemore, Macklemore was never part of that movement, but Macklemore certainly learned everything that he knows from that movement, except for the pop sensibility. So basically what Macklemore did is took that type of songwriting and that type of presentation and made it pop, made it appeal to pop. But Atmosphere are the, is the flagship, most well-known, most respected, and certainly most like commercially successful group of that whole movement. And when I met them, they weren't that yet. Like I was with them when they became that. But learning from, I learned from them how to, you know, make your own music, go on tour, market it directly to your fans, talk to, meet, touch, interact with, form long-term bonds with the people that listen to you. Can you talk about how you collaborate with your producer? We usually start by just having a long, you know, series of conversations. So like I'll go over there saying it's time to make a new album and we'll start by just talking and I'm telling them all the stories from the last year or whatever. We usually really only get to spend a lot of time together when we're making music, we're making an album. So I'm kind of telling him like what life is like for me and what's going on with me and all that kind of stuff. And then from that, he's getting a vibe for like, okay, this is what Ali is about right now. This is what it feels like to be around him. And while, and while we're doing that, usually we'll listen to records and he'll be showing me things that beats that he made or records that he's been listening to or things like that. And he just kind of gets a vibe and then he'll make, so I'll, I'll usually do some exercise songs. So he'll pull a beat up and be like, why don't you start with this? And he knows it's just going to be a standard Brother Ali song, easy to do. But while I'm doing those, kind of getting my, my legs back, then, you know, and kind of just getting my confidence back, he'll start to, uh, he'll start making music that is more catered to what I'm, what my vibe is. How can regular people who have regular jobs, but in creative jobs, take some lessons from your creativity or your creative process and apply them to how they work? I mean, being creative is a spiritual journey and it requires, you have to have spiritual reasons for doing what you're doing. When I say spiritual, I mean not material. And the material also includes status. So if you're doing what you're doing to be, to be you know, powerful, wealthy, to have status, you're not going to be creative and you can just forget it. So you have to have some non-material motivation that's more important to you than the material stuff because the great moments happen when somebody is being 
honest in a way that isn't conducive to money, power, fame, accolades, status, success. That's the, that's the trick of the whole thing. It's like the most successful people in music are the people that take the greatest risks. Most of the music industry are, are people that are just doing what they know will make them successful. And they figured out some, you know, some formula or something like that. But not the true greats. You know what I mean? So the biggest rappers, you might not know it, but if you go to festivals, you know, the ones that make the big radio hits or the ones that make the 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 music that seems like it's not that, um, you know, Migos, for example. I think Migos are very creative. I, you know, they're... they're they're lyrical. Like if you're if you're a literal person that just listens to the words and the topic and like that what you could read on paper, you're not gonna hear that. And if you come from the time that I come from in hip hop, when the lyrics you could read the lyrics on paper and see how amazing they are. Now that's not as much the case, or at least with the Migos in particular. But they are very creative and they're doing a lot of things that are are really amazing. It's just not in the words, it's in the vibe and the the things they're doing. Anyway, but they, they would seem like the biggest group, at least in the last like five years, maybe not at this particular moment. But I would go to festivals where the Migos were playing, at, but then J. Cole is playing or Kendrick Lamar is playing or somebody, you know, somebody like that is playing. And when you watch the actual response of the audience, you would think that J. Cole is not as big as the Migos because everything they do for like a five-year period was a radio hit was a number one record or Drake for, you know, Drake is another good example of that. Although I would say Drake has really great content, you know, like what Drake is saying is also really great. So maybe he's not a good example, but the, the Migos versus J. Cole, J. Cole has no radio hits. I don't think he has one. I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. When you watch the actual audience respond to Migos and you watch them respond to J. Cole, it's very obvious that, that, the audience, when they're listening to J. Cole, it's not about jumping up and down. Like, they're crying. They're, they're tuned in to every single word that's being said. And he's standing there in basketball shorts and a T-shirt. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't go to, the, to Target dressed like how he's dressed. You know what I mean? And I don't know if he's had a haircut. You know what I'm saying? Like he's just got dreads and a big patchy beard and like it's just not about what he looks like. You know, those are the artists still that make the biggest impact. You know, the people that take enormous, tremendous risks. You know, for as crazy as Kanye West looks right now, he became Kanye West because everything he's done has seemed crazy. And I think that I'm offering something that's worthy of being part of this conversation. We talked about failure a little bit, how it feels, but how do, how do you deal with it? How do you overcome it? I, I mean, I did a political record in 2012, like an overtly political album, and it wasn't a success. Like it just, you know, it just wasn't. And I put a lot of work and money into that record. Um, I hired a band for the tour. Like I just, I put more work and money into that than I have had put before. It's this blank tape, Beloved? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I yeah. was at that show in May of uh, 2012. Okay. It was unbelievable. I am shocked that it wasn't well received. I thought it was the closest to James Brown I'd ever get. It was a, it, that's the thing. I mean, it, it felt like a failure and that's what matters for this conversation. You know what I mean? When I look back on that tour and that album now, I'm like, oh, that's great. I mean, the numbers were great. And everybody around me was like, this is fine. You know what I mean? But I thought I was doing something bigger and better. I thought I was making an investment in growth. And that's that's when I started. That's when I stopped growing in terms of my numbers and in terms of like my outward career success. What I thought was going to be an investment in me growing is when I actually stopped. That was the thing that made me stop growing. And it was hard. And I, I was bitter. Like, I got bitter for a while. There's just no getting around it. Like, that was a, that was a bitter-ass time. And I, I realized that I lost touch with gratitude. I lost touch with, you know, I just lost touch of the real why of it all. I thought I was entitled to get back what I put in. And I wasn't. I was doing, I, I did, I made that album for the wrong reason. I made that album to to impact other people. Like I didn't make it for me. I didn't make it to explore and express myself. I made that album because I wanted other people to explore themselves. And like that's not right. That's not a re you can't you don't do that. I don't get to determine that. That's the realm of God. And that's the thing is like for like, you know, all creative people know what what it doesn't matter what you call it. You don't have to say God. You might not like saying God. Some another person might not like that term because it's associated with all kinds of things that but we're talking about the unseen source of meaning. You know, when you really create, you just receive it and you know that. It's like I receive this. Like when I say those days where it's like we just have to go home now. You know what I mean? Uh, Quincy Jones talks about getting goosebumps. And Qu Quincy Jones says when you get goosebumps, that's your antenna to God. That's what he says about it. So he's like, when we made Thriller, every song was Goosebumps. And he's like, I've never had that before or after. And he's done a lot of great things, but he's like, Goosebumps all the time making that album. And then you release it, and you know, and then whatever, whatever the unseen source did for you, the unseen source will do for others when they hear it. And you, have no, you don't have any control over any of it. You know, so what, when I told myself that I was doing like, this is bigger than me. And this is like, no, in fact, it was all about me. It was just about me wanting to feel important and wanting to feel like, and wanting to own my gift and all that kind of stuff. So I deserve to fail for that record. How did you overcome it or maybe forgive yourself? You said you were angry for a while. Yeah. Well, I was bitter, you know, um, I tried to quit. I mean, I basically tried to quit. That's when I started studying Islam basically full time. And I came across people, you know, the spiritual teachers that basically just re, re you know, ex were able to explain the reality of creativity and creation and just what life is really about, what this whole path is really about in a way that that g grabbed me from the cliff that I was on and center me again. What's the longest tour you've ever been on? It depends on whether we, what we count as a tour, you know. So some people, 
the longest I've been, I've gone without going home was 12 weeks. It's a long time. Yeah. But I had a two year period where I wasn't home for more than four days at a time. Oh, man. So we could call that a tour. We could say that when I did that. Yes. That was last year. That was two years ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, so I was, you know, 30, 38, 39. So I guess I have a cup. I have a few questions on that, but I'll I'll just limit it to two. First, that's many nights in a row. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep yourself engaged? How do you deliver to your audience the performance that they're expecting, night in and night out? I mean, again, so when I'm when I'm doing when I'm when it's right for me, I don't have much control over the experience that they have. So you know, I have come to realize that the experiencing that, that they're having is from the source and it's not from me because there's times when I thought I'd like, you know, so my experience of the show that you went to with the band to me, I'm like, this is, this is horrible. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It was really an amazing experience. I tell people about it. You know, whenever I talk about you, I tell, tell them about that show. And that's a beautiful thing. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, cause I'm, I'm sitting there like, this is, I will. I will probably not. This is probably the last time I'll headline in the in first half. I was pretty sure of that that day. You know what I mean? And then yeah, and I mean that that kind of started my like just do it enough to keep the lights on, you know. But so when so when when it's right, I'm hopefully just receiving and giving it from the most pure place I can, and I don't have any control over what the people get. So I guess the next question is, how do you maintain a personal life with your family when you're gone so much? It's just become our norm. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have anything to compare it to. So it's, it's just very normal for us. I don't think it's good or bad. I think it just is. You know, when I'm home, I'm really home. Present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I'm home, I'm the main caretaker of the house like I'm I I like domestic stuff I like to cook I like to clean I like to do laundry I like to I'm just into I'm I'm I like doing those things I don't like doing yard work you know what I mean I don't like there's certain types of things that like I don't know how to fix things but uh you know I was raised by women and so I, I really and I really admired what they did like what they did really translated to love to me like cooking, you know, having a certain ambiance in the house and things like that. That's, for me, that's how I, love was shown to me. And so that's how I show love, you know. So when I'm home, I'm very, very, very present. At least physically, you know what I mean? But I still, I'm an artist. And so I think artists are just really aware of our states. Like we're just in different states all the time. And so sometimes if I'm in a certain if I'm in a really intense state, I might not be very emotionally present, but I'm serving. Mm-hmm. I want to switch gears to mm-hmm. the music and society and what role music has. What impact on society does music have now, and how has that changed since you've been in the business? Pre-modern people before technology believed that whatever it is that we believe is animating the unseen cause of the physical reality is more true than the physical reality. That the universe had to have had a cause. 
regardless of what they thought that cause to be. They all agree on the fact that uh, because everything in the material world is changing, that means that it has a beginning and it has an end. Anything with a beginning had to be, had to be caused by something. The cause of a thing is always greater than the thing it causes. You know? So we get back, regardless of the tradition, every human tradition had an unseen source of it all. That unseen source is the world of meaning. And that unseen source is what's reflected in the life of beauty and in the language of, of, in the language of beauty and in the language of spirituality. That's where meaning comes from. And that's, that world is what determines virtue that, and right and wrong and morality and ethics and vice. And that, is what, that world is what should be obeyed. Now the physical world is the end-all, be-all. And in that world, the, the role of art and music and beauty is that we're the only people that are allowed to even talk about the unseen life of meaning. Religion has been relegated to, you know, in a secular life. Religion, religion is like it might as well be a hobby that you do in your garage. If, if your religion affects what, how you impact, if your religion impacts other people, then you're some sort of tyrant for that. You know, what you've been able to figure out how to do scientifically, you can just do. And it's, con it's, it's considered to be progress, even though it destroys the world and it destroys people. This, this, modern, this modern insistence on materialism has destroyed culture. It's destroyed what the human being really is. It's destroyed hearts. And it reduces everything. So the human being used to be understood to be a soul, a heart, an intellect, and an ego. Now it's just all, a human being is just a, a series of chemical reactions. And if we have to deal with the, the unseen, un uh, measurable, immeasurable part of the human being, we'll only talk about the intellect, the psyche, just the psyche. No, you can't talk about the soul. That's made up. That's just somebody's wives' tales. You can't talk about the soul. Psychology, the word psyche means soul. It doesn't mean brain. But we reduce everything to what we can control. And the purpose of reducing all this stuff is because the material world and the material world is the domain of dominators. That's the only thing they can control is the material world. So they insist that life is only material because that's what they control. That's what their bombs and their guns and their systems control is material stuff. If we have to acknowledge the, the unseen part of the, 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 the mystery of, of humanity, we'll relegate it to just the mind. Because the mind can also be controlled by rhetoric, and uh, propaganda, you know. So we can control the mind. You can't control the soul. So the soul doesn't really exist. The soul is just somebody's made-up fairy tale. You can't really talk about that. You can't really in engage that as though it were real, as though it were more real. Pre-modern people believed that the unseen source of the world is more real than the world. The world of meaning so psyche is a god. The word psyche is a god. That means the god of the soul. And psychology is the science of the soul. It's been relegated to the science of the brain.
So we just talk about the brain and the mind. You know what I mean? So the role of music is extremely important and art and beauty in general. Like the language of beauty is the only remaining uh, arena where the human being is allowed to acknowledge that the, the unseen, the transcendent, is real. It's the only arena. That we're, those are the only people that are allowed to do that. You know what I mean? And that's evident in so many ways. You know what I mean? In so many ways. Art, art is all we have left. Uh, so so let, me, let me ask you just about your stage presence because I think it is really remarkable. You seem like an introvert to me or at least a deep, deep thinker. And where does that come from? The stage presence? The stage presence, yeah. Mm, I don't know. I really, I don't know. Like, I, I really don't know. But I do know that... You're in command. Yes. I do seem to be a commander. I'm definitely a leader. Like, I was just made that way. And um, stage, stage or... Or speaking are the times when it's so this is like I you know I teach a weekly class on Islamic spirituality and it's almost a secret it's like in a basement you know what I mean there's only like it we started with like eight people and it's grown to like 40 people it's like fight club you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean we're like you know and I mean it's there's people there that my wife said to me one time like you just cannot avoid that whatever you're doing or whatever you're thinking about, there's going to be a room full of people silently listening to you. And that's just something that was I, like, I. you can't claim these things. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's one of the things you learn from Islamic, from all spirituality, but the, from Sufism is that, you know, it would be to, to, to boost or to, to exaggerate your gift is an attempt to own your gift. And that's one form of, you know, being immodest or being arrogant. But also to minimize it unjustly is an attempt to own it. So that, so this, this is what I mean when I say performative self-deprecation. For me to be like, oh, no, it's not. You know what I mean? No, that's an attempt to own our gifts. Yeah, it's disingenuous. I, yeah, and it's just not, I don't own that. Like, I did not give myself that. I didn't learn that. You know what I mean? There are a lot of people that in some ways rap better than me. There's certainly people that look better than me and are in better shape than me, but they just weren't given what I was given, and I don't know why. Well, thank you for sharing it. Ali, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for being a genius. <laughs> I'm just going to... They say one of one of the, the tests of a, a spiritual person is to sit still while being complimented. So I got nothing to say to that. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Thanks also to the amazing team that makes this show possible. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Ryan Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are top-notch. To learn how 12 Geniuses can prepare leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, please go to 12geniuses.com.